0: Amen. Thank you, Luke and Yasmin and Sam and Josh for leading us before the throne. There's something miraculous that happens when we sing together, when we lift our voices, when we obey the command in Colossians to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, teaching and admonishing one another, encouraging each other there's something truly miraculous that happens to remind each other we have a high king in heaven who has purchased our victory already. And therefore we're pleading, bring us safely home. May we reach heaven's joys. That's what we're longing for, heaven's joys. We want to see Christ. Heart of my own heart, whatever befalls, whatever we we are going through, whatever disasters we might be facing whatever difficulties we might be facing, whatever joys we might be encountering and experiencing, whatever happens. Let Christ be our vision in every single aspect. Praise God for those lyrics. Thank you for leading us before the throne. If you have your copy of God's word, take it and turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. And while you're turning there, I want to just ask you to think about this question if you had to go back and look back in history in church history who would your historical hero be you look back in church history and maybe we can say outside of the bible who would your historical spiritual hero be there are so many people that could fill that list and maybe as we fellowship together this afternoon we can dialogue about who your spiritual hero is. I have many. My list just keeps growing and growing as I read more biographies of men and women of the faith who have run their race to completion, who love Christ, and who shared him with all they came into contact with. But two stand out to me uh, today. This list will probably change in a couple weeks, but two stand out to me today as spiritual heroes of the past. One is Jonathan Edwards. Many of you know that name. He wrote resolutions when he was a teenager. He wrote 70 of them. And he would read them every Lord's Day, at the end of every Lord's Day, to look back on the week and see how he had been doing and look forward ahead to the next week and pray that his heart would be resolved in those 70 ways. And then he would read them every January 1st as the new year commenced. I want to read one resolution that he wrote when he was 19. He wrote most of them when he was 17, but he wrote... Resolution 63, when he was 19, he says this. Resolved on the supposition that there never was to be but one individual in the world at any one time who was properly a complete Christian, in all respects of a a right stamp, having Christianity always shining in its true luster and appearing excellent and lovely, from whatever part and under whatever character viewed, resolved to act just as I would do if I strove with all my might to be that one who should live in my time. Now, if that's confusing language, that's okay. It's from the 1700s. Let me sum it up for you. This is what he's saying. If there's only one true Christian in the world who's actually following Jesus with every fiber of their being, I want to be that one. That's what he's saying. I want to be the best Christian that there is in the world. Now, for some of us, we might hear that and think it's arrogance. It's not. It's godly ambition that says, I want to follow Jesus as closely as I possibly can with nothing impeding my progress, with nothing standing in the way. I want Jesus, and I want to follow him in the best way I possibly can. Another spiritual hero of mine is Jim Elliott, who I believe lived out Jonathan Edwards' Resolution 63. At the age of 28, he was killed in 1956 after taking the gospel to Ecuador, to a tribe in Ecuador that had never heard of Jesus Christ, that tribe has since then become saved, you remember his very famous statement where he said, he is no fool who gives up what he can never keep to gain what he can never lose. So Jonathan Edwards and Jim Elliott put them together, and what you have is a person who is saying, I want to be the best Christian I possibly can be and I want to live with an eternal perspective that changes every second of my life, giving myself, giving my, enti- my entire life, which I could never hold on to anyway, to gain that which I can never lose. Another way to say it is both Jonathan Edwards and Jim Elliott had a self-sacrificing faithfulness in this present life because of a settled confidence in God's promises in the next. Now, the reason I say that is because we will meet some spiritual heroes this morning. We've already met them in Revelation chapter 7. We're going to reintroduce ourselves to them in Revelation chapter 14. But these are spiritual heroes of the faith. They have yet to happen, right? This is in the future. We have not met these individuals, nor are we these individuals. But in the future, at some point, God will seal for himself 144,000 Jewish people, 12,000 from the 12 different tribes of Israel. He will protect them, he will seal them, and he will bring them safely through that seven-year period of time, Daniel's 70th week of intense suffering, persecution, the wrath of Satan, the wrath of God. The 144,000 will make it through unscathed. Spurgeon calls these 144,000 individuals super-Christians, the elect of the elect. And so as we look back on spiritual heroes like Jim Elliott and Jonathan Edwards, we're going to look forward this morning on spiritual heroes yet to come. We first met them in Revelation chapter 7. You remember at the end of Revelation chapter 6, the wrath of God has come, and all of the people of the world are saying... Let the rocks fall on us. Let the the rocks cover us. No one can stand against the wrath of God. That's their question. Who can stand against God's wrath? And the answer in chapter 7 is, anyone that God places his seal on, they'll make it. They'll be protected. You don't have to fear the wrath of God if you are sealed by God himself. The exact same thing is happening here in chapter 14. In Revelation chapter 13, we met the dragon, the antichrist, and the false prophet. That unholy trinity of the devil, the antichrist, and the false prophet working together in chapter 13 to establish an earthly kingdom to try and rival Christ's coming kingdom. It's not going to work. It's going to fail. But at the end of, the chapter, of, of chapter 13, you remember, we talked about the mark of the beast, 666. We talked about people bowing down before this statue, and if they do not bow, they will be killed. So the question that we run into at the end of chapter 13 is, will there be anyone who will not succumb to the dragon's efforts to have all of the world worship the Antichrist? Is there going to be anyone that's going to make it out of this time period during the Great Tribulation, the back half of that seven-year period? Is there going to be anyone who's going to make it out following Jesus and not bowing the knee to the devil? And the answer is chapter 14. It's a resounding yes. There will be people who make it, And just like chapter six was asking who can stand and chapter seven said those who are protected by God, so too chapter 13 is saying who's gonna be able to make it? Who's gonna stand and not bow? And chapter 14 is gonna tell us those who are marked for protection, sealed by the Holy Spirit, saved, separated from the world. Those are the ones who are gonna make it out. Alive, following Christ and not bowing the knee to the Antichrist, the false prophet, or the devil himself. Really, the words that can fly over this sermon are the words from the beautiful hymn, The Church is One Foundation. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. The church will make it through. In the midst of toil and tribulation and the tumult of war, the church is going to make it through to a time of peace forevermore. So let's read these verses and ask God's blessing on our time together as we dive into Revelation 14. Revelation 14, beginning in verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women because they've kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Father, as we look at this text as we see a vision of triumphant saints in the latter days of human history. I pray that we would see their example, hear their testimony, and like Jonathan Edwards, that we would say, we want to be resolved to be the best Christians we can be. We want to be resolved to be the best Christians there are, not out of arrogance, but out of ambition, godly ambition to live resolved for you and your glory. God, that's only possible by the power of your Spirit. Even these 144,000 would have no possibility of making it through the tribulation if not for your sealing, marking them as protected. Father, for those who are here this morning who have been marked by your Spirit, who have been given your Spirit as the guarantee of the inheritance yet to come, I pray that this morning we would be encouraged by your word, the hope that we are supposed to get from the book of Revelation. May we have it here this morning. And Father, for any in this room who do not have your Holy Spirit residing in them because they are not saved, they do not bow the knee to Christ, they do not love him, they do not follow him. They do not know the precarious position that they're in in their sins, living in rebellion against you. Father, I pray that they would see that there is a way that has been made for them this morning to be saved, for every ounce of guilt and shame to be done away with, for every sin past, present, and future to be forgiven, and that they can follow you, the Lamb, wherever you go. God, be our teacher this morning. Holy Spirit, as we pray every Lord's Day, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We are completely dependent on you, and so we ask by your grace, be our teacher, instruct our hearts, and show us Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. The beginning of Revelation chapter 14 is a, a fancy term. It's called uh, proleptic. It's a, it's a way of looking at a future event as if it has already happened. You know this in the Bible. You remember in Romans chapter 8, when Paul says, those whom he foreknew, those whom God foreknew, he also justified. Those he's justified, he's, he's called, he's sanctified, and he has glorified. So he has glorified. That's in the past tense. It's already been done. You and I are not glorified. We are waiting for our glorification to be in heaven with Christ, but that's in the proleptic uh, phrasing. The, The way that Paul writes that is to say, it's so settled, it's as good as done, that we can speak of a future event as if it's happened in the past. That's the same exact thing that's happening here. And the reason I say that is because there's a strange turn when we get to chapter 14, and it begins with the words, then I looked and behold... Those words are words that we have seen eight different times in Revelation up until this point. And this this phrase is a phrase that says we're changing the vision. What we were talking about, we're going somewhere else. The reason why we need to know that is because where we are going is actually to the very end of Daniel's 70th week. We were smack dab in the middle of it in Revelation 13. And now we're fast forwarding all the way to the end to answer the question, Who can make it through this seven-year period of time without bowing the knee to the devil? So the answer is in chapter 14, but we have to go all the way to the end of Daniel's 70th week to understand who's not going to bow the knee. Will there be anyone who is standing with Christ and not with the Antichrist? In fact, chapter 14 is really just a contrast of everything that we covered in chapter 13. It's light in the midst of darkness, Chapter 13 is about a beast, chapter 14 is about a lamb. Chapter 13 is out of the sea, chapter 14 is on the mountain. Chapter 13 is the beasts on the move, chapter 14 is the lamb standing firm. 13 has people of the earth being deceived, chapter 14 has people on the earth believing. Chapter 13 has people being stamped with the mark of the antichrist, the mark of the beast. Chapter 14 is people being stamped with the mark of the lamb. Chapter 13 is everyone believing the lies. Chapter 14 is people believing the truth. Chapter 13 is the beast opening his mouth and speaking like a dragon. Chapter 14 is the lamb speaking with the sound of of many waters, thundering with praise. Every phrase in chapter 14 is a counterbalance to chapter 13, and it really asks the question and answers it, what sets apart people in this world from those who are going to worship the Antichrist? How will you make it through this period of great tribulation without worshiping the antichrist and we're given three answers so point number one on your outline this morning god will preserve his people how are these individuals going to make it through this period of great tribulation because of god's preservation god will preserve his people this is in verse one then i looked and behold the lamb was standing on mount zion he is standing The beasts were moving. He's standing. He's not rising out of the sea or rising out of the the seashore. He's standing. It's in the perfect tense, meaning he's established and can never be threatened in his standing. This is Jesus standing on the earth saying, I have won. I have come to bring victory to all who would follow me. His pose is no longer that of a slain lamb. Now he is a victor, a militant victor with his feet firmly planted on Mount Zion. Now, What is Mount Zion? Mount Zion is used 162 times in the Bible, and really all of those times, 160 160 of those 162, all of them but two deal with literal, physical Jerusalem. There are two. In fact, even of those two, there's one that's a little bit iffy because I think it deals with the new Jerusalem, so it's still a place, a physical place. There's one that refers to a celestial kingdom and heaven itself. It's clear in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, that Mount Zion refers to a heavenly city yet to come. But every other time in the Bible, when we read of Mount Zion, it's a physical, literal place, and it's Jerusalem. It's the city of Jerusalem. Just write down these verses. Let me give you some verses to, to study on your own time later. Micah chapter 4, verse 7, God says, "'I will make the lame a remnant, and the outcasts a strong nation.'" And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now and forevermore. That's literal, physical Jerusalem. Joel chapter 2, verse 32 ends with this prophecy. It will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So Mount Zion, there will be a place in Jerusalem, a mountain in Jerusalem, where those that God calls to himself to preserve and protect will join him in the end times. Joel chapter 3 verses 12 through 17 says the exact same thing. Psalm chapter 2, why do the nations rage? Why are they in an uproar? They they are trying to cast off God's fetters and cast off his irons. They hate his laws. They hate his rules. They don't want him to be God. And God says he sits in the heavens and he laughs. And he says, I will establish my Messiah, my Christ, my King. I will establish him on Mount Zion. And there he will reign in righteousness. My holy mountain, Mount Zion. The reason why I stress this is because there are people that believe that what we are looking at is in heaven. It's a vision of the celestial kingdom in heaven. That the lamb standing on Mount Zion is not Jerusalem, but it's actually in heaven itself. I don't think that it refers to that, number one, because 160 times out of the 162 times in the Bible, Mount Zion refers to a physical, literal Jerusalem. Number two, just remember the 144,000 were sealed in chapter seven to be protected throughout the entirety of the tribulation, right? They're not going to be killed by the wrath of God through the tribulation. So they're not going to die, which would be very strange to see them dead in heaven here in chapter 14, God would have gone back on his word. God would have gone back on his promise. No, they made it alive through the tribulation. And so here we see them on physical, literal Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Secondly, if you go to verse two, John says, I heard a voice coming from heaven. So if he's in heaven, he wouldn't be saying that phrase. He would say, and I heard a voice. I'm in heaven, obviously, so I'm hearing voices in heaven. But he's on earth seeing Mount Zion, seeing the 144,000, seeing Jesus, the lamb leading them And therefore he says, oh, and I heard a voice coming from heaven. So I think there's enough proof and evidence here that what we are dealing with is a vision of the future of the great tribulation. Go all the way to the end of the seven year period of the tribulation. Go all the way to the end where Jesus is going to come a second time, his second coming that we've already sung about. He's going to establish his millennial kingdom for a thousand years and reign and rule on the earth. We are at the very beginning of that reign here in chapter 14. John is seeing it as if it's already happened because it's as good as done. So who's going to make it? The lamb is standing on Mount Zion and with him, he's not alone, 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Again, this group was first mentioned at the beginning of the great tribulation the second mention of the 144,000 is now at the end, still intact, totally preserved, safe in the hands of God. One commentator says it this way, no other age has produced a company like these 144,000, a veritable army of militant believers marching unscathed through every form of danger. It's been theirs to defy the dragon, debate the beast, and give the lie to the false prophet. Their calling has been to preach the gospel from the housetops, when even to name the name of Christ called for the most dreadful of all penalties. They've been surrounded, these latter-day Jobs with impenetrable hedges, able to laugh, to scorn all the grand inquisitors of hell itself. They've walked the streets in broad daylight, careless of the teeth gnashing rage of their would-be torturers and assassins, true witnesses of Jehovah in the most terrible era of the history of mankind. The devil knows about this coming band of conquerors and writhes already in an agony of anticipation. I love that line. The devil knows about these 144,000. He's read this book, and he's writhing in agony at the anticipation of not being able to touch them. For all the dragon's assaults, Not one of God's people, not one of these preserved, marked out 144,000 will be lost. Now, that isn't to say that there are uh, no believers in the end times who are going to be killed. In fact, the majority of believers in the end time will be killed. They will be killed because they do not bow the knee to the false prophet, to the Antichrist, and to the dragon. But these 144,000 sealed by God for protection will never die. They will not be killed during that period of tribulation and it's not because of them it's because of god preserving his people number two how do these people make it number two because god's people will praise him god will preserve his people and then in the midst of that preservation god's people will praise him god's people will praise him this is verses two and three verse two i heard a voice from heaven So again, I I believe that John is standing in Jerusalem, seeing Mount Zion, literal, physical Mount Zion, with the Lamb and the 144,000, and then he hears a voice from heaven. And there's three descriptions of this voice. It's like the sound of many waters. We've heard that description in Revelation about God himself speaking. It's like a a, a thunderous um, cliff with water just going right off the top of it into a, a huge, massive waterfall. This is powerfully used in chapter 1 to speak of the voice of God. It's also used in Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, to speak of the voice of an angel. So it doesn't have to only be God's voice. It can be just loud voices together. The second description is it's a voice like the sound of thunder. It's great volume. It's frighteningly loud. And then the third description is it's like the sound of harpists. Literally, the text says it's like the sound of harpists harping their harps, which I just, I love that. That's just, they're... As as clear as you want it to be, these people are harping away. They love the harping, and they're doing it well. Why are they doing it? Well, Psalm 137 tells us. Remember when the people of Israel were exiled out of Israel, they hung up their harps because they knew there's no more joy happening. This is all just sorrow. And then when they came back, they took their harps and they started playing. These 144,000 are going home. They're safe. They've made it. And so they're no longer in exile. They're worshiping. They're singing. So this is a voice in the singular that's from everywhere. It's inescapable. It's just all around. And there's a new song. Notice verse 3. They sang a new song. So one voice being sung by many people. They sang with one voice. I love that. That, that dictates to us that there will be unity in heaven like we've never understood here on earth. All of these people can sing together, but it just sounds like one voice coming out of heaven. They're singing a new song. Now, we don't know exactly who's singing this song. It never really tells us. Uh, It could be a preview of the 144,000 song because we know that they're the ones that are going to learn this. They're going to sing it. So maybe it's the angels teaching them this song. Maybe it's redeemed saints helping them learn this song. We don't really know. We don't need to know. But we know that this is, verse 3, a new song that's before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. So the four living creatures aren't singing it. The elders aren't singing it. Maybe some host of heaven is singing it. The, the reality is no one, end of verse 3, can learn this song except for the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. They're going to be the ones who are being taught this song to then sing this song. Why? Why can only they know this song? Because only they will know the redemption that God has offered to bring them safely through the tribulation. Only they will know that. Everyone else is being slaughtered. All other Christians are being slaughtered during that period of seven years. But these will make it through alive, safe, preserved by God. They've made it through, and therefore they're singing the praises of God for his preserving work on their behalf. Henry Morris writes an interesting note about this. He says, although the words of the song of the 144,000 are not recorded, it surely dwells in part at least on the great truth that they had been redeemed from the earth, because that's what it says there. Although in one sense all saved people had been redeemed from the earth, these could know the meaning of such a theme in a more profound way than others. They had been saved after the rapture, at that time in history when man's greatest persecutions and God's greatest judgments were on the earth. It was such a time that they, like Noah, had found grace in the eyes of the Lord and been separated from all that dwell on the earth. Not only had they been redeemed spiritually, but precursively, as it were, they had been redeemed from the very curse on the earth, being protected from pain and death by a guarding seal. The end of verse three tells us they've been purchased, they've been redeemed, they've been bought. They didn't do this work, God did it on their behalf and therefore they are praising God for their redemption. Just one point of application for us as redeemed believers. When you're redeemed, you sing differently. When you know the redemption that is only made possible because of the blood of Jesus Christ, you sing differently. I've had this experience. I don't know if you've seen people that go to church for the majority of their life, they're not saved and they stand there and they're singing the songs and they're going through the motions and then God saves them. And then they show up that next Lord's Day and it's a different experience. When they're singing words like, I will glory in my Redeemer and they realize the redemption that they've been given in Christ, it's no longer standing, I will glory. It is, I cannot help myself from singing, my Redeemer has saved me. You sing differently when you're redeemed. Said another, said another way, J.F. Packer says, any theology that does not lead to song is, at a fundamental level, a flawed theology. I love that. We don't learn theology for the purpose of just learning and growing our head knowledge. We learn for the purpose of rejoicing and praising God for who he is and for what he's done. One last just observation from verses 2 and 3, this new song that no one had ever known. Some people say that heaven's going to be boring. I've heard people say, well, there's nothing new under the sun. It's from Ecclesiastes, you know that verse. There's nothing new under the sun, it's all going to be boring. Well, there's nothing new under the sun on earth. There's a lot of new stuff in heaven. And this is a new song. They're going to go to heaven. They're going to say, hey, we kind of know everything, don't we? And somebody's going to give them a hymnal and say, you never heard this song before. And they're going to see it and read it and sing it. Trust me, you'll never be bored in heaven. And you'll be learning and growing and enjoying new things in new ways that you could never imagine here on earth. So God will preserve his people. That's how they're going to make it through. His people will praise him as they are being brought through. And then finally, number three, in, question, uh, in answering the question, how are these people going to be saved through this period of great suffering and tribulation? Number three, God's people will pursue him as their greatest passion. God's people will pursue him as their greatest passion. So number one, God will preserve his people Number two, God's people will praise him for that preservation. But all throughout, God's people will pursue him as their greatest passion. This is verses four and five. You can see this is just about being set apart from those who dwell on the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women because they have kept themselves chaste. So this is a, a difficult verse to interpret. There's really two ways to interpret it. Some of your Bibles might say they have kept themselves virgins. Uh, that's one way to translate that word, and it's, an, it's a right way to translate it, and so that would be a very easy way to understand that these 144,000 men, 12,000 from the 12 different tribes of Israel, they never got married. That's one way to interpret this, and the, the application, the interpretation behind that is kind of a 1 Corinthians 7 way of understanding what Paul said of, of don't get married, have a single-minded devotion. If you can do that, if you have the gift of singleness, stay single for the purpose of being devoted to the Lord, do that. That's good. That could be what's in view here. Also, the second interpretation, and I would lean more towards this interpretation, it, it's a statement of the fact that not that they are unmarried, but that they are married, but they're, they're sexually pure. Because being married is not sinful. If you are a believer married to a a non-believer, that's going against God's word. But if you are two believers married and you're enjoying the gift of physical intimacy, that is not sinful at all. So I think that that's why in the New American Standard, uh, they, they kind of help with the interpretation when they translate that word as chaste. They've kept themselves pure, undefiled. They're chaste. Not virgins as in they aren't married, but they are undefiled, morally pure. Possibly could also have the connotation of morally pure from the idolatry of that day. Everybody's bowing down and worshiping the statue of the Antichrist, but these 144,000 have kept themselves pure sexually. They've kept themselves pure from idolatry. However it would be interpreted, we know that this has at its foundation the understanding of the temptation of sexual immorality, and these men say no. These men say no. How do they say no? Listen to the words of Garrett Kell in in an amazing book called Pure in Heart. He says this, Satan offers a cup of promised refreshment in sexual immorality. But he doesn't disclose the drop of poison within that cup. He's a master counterfeiter, assuring you that compromise will not kill you. You can escape at any time you like. Like a fisherman who presents the bait, and hides the hook. Satan fishes for us with personalized lures. He has studied you. He knows what you like, maybe even more than you do. Satan desires nothing more than to keep you from seeing Jesus, so he does all that he can to keep your Bible closed, your prayer closet empty, your fellowship shallow, and your trust in God's promises hollow. But for the 144,000 here, they do not buy into Satan's lies. They see that cup of re- refreshment that Satan offers them, and they see the poison inside of that cup. They say no, and that's why they've kept themselves pure. Not only have they kept themselves pure, middle of verse 4, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. We're going to come back to that because I think that's the crux of this, these two verses at the end here. They've been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb." The term firstfruits is well known to Jewish people because it's the name of one of the seven feasts that they are to celebrate each year, according to Leviticus 23. The feast of firstfruits always falls on a Sunday and follows the week in which Passover occurs. The first fruits are an indication of a coming harvest, We saw the beginning, there's fruit on a tree, there's one fruit, the first fruit that pops uh, on that tree that we can see, there's fruit coming, there's more to come. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 23 refers to Jesus as the first fruits of the resurrection, meaning that he, not the first person to be resurrected and to be raised from the dead, he wasn't the first person to be raised from the dead, he was the first person to be raised from the dead never to die again. There were a lot of people, Lazarus, right? He was raised from the dead, but then he died again. Jesus is the first person who was raised from the dead never to die again. And guess what? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are going to be raised from the dead never to die again and be put in heaven and enjoy fellowship with Christ for all of eternity. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you also will be raised from the dead never to die, but be sent to the lake of fire where you will be in torment forever. This term, first fruits means that the 144,000 are the beginning of more that will follow, more that will come after them, more that will be saved. And we've seen this all throughout the book of Revelation thus far and all throughout the Old Testament, that in the midst of the greatest time of persecution, as if God were removing himself and we think, you know what, this is it, he's just letting us go and, and he's letting Satan take over and no one's going to get saved, it's actually the opposite. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 14, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, Romans 11, 26 through 27, Romans 6, 9 through 11, Romans 7, 9, Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. All of those verses say that in those end times, Jews and Gentiles alike will be getting saved. Zechariah 13, verses 8 through 9 suggests that the remnant of Israel will consist of one third of all Israel being saved in the end times. Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 indicates that they're going to get saved by the spirit of grace being poured out on them in the end times. Ezekiel chapter 39 verse 29 prophesies a time when God's going to pour out his spirit during the end times and bring people to himself. So when it says that these 144,000 are the first fruits to God and to the lamb, it's saying that these men are just the tip of the iceberg of the salvation that God's going to bring to people in the end times. Not only are they undefiled, not only are they just the tip of the iceberg of the people that God is saving, but also, verse 5, no lie is found in their mouth. They are blameless. This is in stark contrast to the deceitfulness of the beasts. They're lying every chance they get, and these 144,000 have zero lie found in their mouth. They lacked any insincerity or duplicity that would make their self-consecration unacceptable to God. They have no blame. That doesn't mean they're sinless. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9 says, Who can say I've cleansed my heart? I'm pure from all sin. Nobody can say that. Nobody can say I'm pure from all sin. So this doesn't mean sinless, but it means above reproach. It means being preserved and, and kept clean from the false religion and the idolatry and the sexual immorality of that day. And by the way, we're called to be blameless as well. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, we're called to be without blame. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 27, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 19 says that believers are those who are without blemish. Colossians chapter 1 verse 22 says that we have no blame as those who are in Christ. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 says that believers should be without spot. And Jude 24 says that we are supposed to be faultless. Just think about this time period. Just think about these 144,000 in the midst of the the time of tribulation, the seven-year period. They cannot be touched by the Antichrist, the false prophet, or the devil himself. And they have no lie in their mouth. They are undefiled with women. They have zero desire to pursue sexual immorality. They have one focus in their mind, and that's follow the lamb wherever he goes. Can you imagine the impact that these men could have in the world. Reminds me of John Wesley who said, just give me 10 men that hate nothing but sin and love nothing but God, and we can change the world. Just 10. Give me 10 men who hate nothing but sin and love nothing but God, and we can change the world. Well, guess what? God has given the world in the end times 144,000 men. And they are going to bring amazing grace to the nations. But it's not just the 144,000 who are preaching the gospel. We'll see next week that angels are flying around in heaven preaching the gospel. God desires, even in the worst time in all of human history, God desires that none would perish, but that all would come to saving faith and repentance in him. So God will preserve his people. That's how they're going to make it through. God's people will praise him for that preservation. And God's people pursue him with the greatest passion of their lives. What are we supposed to do with this text? What are we supposed to do with this passage? It's yet to come. And as I said, we're not involved in those 144,000. I definitely know I'm not involved because I'm not Jewish. So I'm not going to be involved in this. And if you are Jewish, I still don't think you're going to be involved in it because I think that you will be raptured at this point. So God's going to bring salvation to these 144,000 after the rapture occurs so I don't think that we're involved in these 144,000 people I don't think we're there but just as we look back at Jonathan Edwards and Jim Elliot we can look forward and see spiritual heroes and say how can we learn from them and how can we be like them let me give you just a couple points of application number one rather than being left to dread Satan and fear his ways John is led to worship God and delight in the hope that he offers. So we come to chapter 14. We just finished 666, right? Which is one of the worst portions of Revelation. The beast has taken over. The whole world's following him. Who's not going to bow the knee? Chapter 14, at least 144,000, if not more. We know that there will be more because they're the first fruits. So instead of looking and saying, this is the worst time In all of human history, everything's going bad. Let's just give up despair and die. John's showing us we can have hope. Brothers and sisters, life is bad. It's not as bad right now as it's going to be then, right? We can say that. It's not as bad now as it's going to be then. And so if God's giving hope then in the worst of times, then God can give us hope now, Even if you don't like living in California because you think the political climate's bad, it's not as bad as the tribulation, amen? So however dark you feel the times are right now, and they are, and they are probably getting darker, do not give evil more power than it should have. God is on his throne, in control, and we have hope beyond our wildest imaginations because he has sealed you By his spirit. So don't succumb to the darkness. Don't succumb to everything's going bad. Everything's getting worse. We're just all going to die. 144,000 people in the tribulation say God's in control and we have hope. Then we can have hope too. Number two, how did they overcome? Did they do anything on their own to overcome? No. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are given victory through Christ, just like these men were given victory through Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. He always leads us in triumph. And by the way, that can mean being led in triumph to having your head cut off because you love Jesus, Right? That can can mean being led to the darkest form of persecution you could ever imagine. And you're being led in triumph. So, number one, let's have hope. Number two, let's remember where our strength comes from, our power comes from. It comes from Christ, not from us. Number three, these 144,000 are the first fruits, right? They are giving us an invitation This morning. How crazy awesome is this? They have not even probably been born yet, and yet they're teaching us this morning and inviting us to follow after them. They're not even here and they're telling us to do something. They're inviting us today. Follow us. Come after them. One of the ways that they would say, Follow us. Come after us. Let us be the first fruits and follow us. One of the ways that they would say that this morning. It's through the temptations that they experience, they say no, 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 and they don't defile themselves with the things of this world. Again, Garrett Kell says it this way. When you're tempted today, remember the last day. Make decisions today that you'll be grateful for 10,000 years from now. Which, e- With each passing moment, we draw nearer to that day when we'll be saved to sin no more. Until then, read often of heaven and ask God to make you homesick for that everlasting city where the pure in heart will see him at last. Kill your love for sin, or sin will kill your love for God. If you will know the freedom of seeing God, then today you must know the pain of killing sin. You say, I want to be like that. I want to do that, but I'm not like that. I want to follow in the 144,000 footsteps. I want to follow after them. But I'm not like that. I would say, first of all, join the club, right? I'm not like that either. But secondly, we have to notice where their freedom from sin, where their blameless living, where does all of it come from? What's the source of it? And that's in verse four, right in the middle. In fact, it's really a, a chiastic structure. You remember how Hebrews uh, think in terms of chiasms, right? The the Old Testament is written in a lot of chiasms through Hebrew language, and this is John writing as a Jewish man, so he's thinking in Hebrew, even though he's writing in Greek. And chiastic structures would would give mirrored issues that, that ultimately center in chiasm is an X, it would center in from external issues that go all the way to the foundational crux of the matter. You can do that here. In, in verse 4, we have people who are not defiled with women. They're blameless. You have people who are, uh, f- they are keeping themselves pure. They're first fruits, And then right in the middle, they're those who follow the lamb wherever he goes. That's the way in which they can remain pure. That's the way in which they are blameless because they're following the lamb. So my question to us this morning is, what do you follow who do you follow who do you listen to as we read this section we see there's hope in the midst of darkness there's strength by God himself that will enable us to live with power in the midst of these hard times but thirdly the way in which we do that is by following the lamb do you follow the lamb whose voice is loudest in your ear is it Facebook? Is it Instagram? Is it your coworker who doesn't know Jesus? Whose voice is it? Who's loudest in your ears? What is your deepest desire in your heart? Do you listen to the voice of the Lamb in the Word? Do you look for him here in this book? Do you follow wherever his footsteps go? It's really as simple as you remember the old bracelets, the WWJD bracelets, right? what would Jesus do? It's really as simple as that. What what would Jesus do? I would change the bracelet to say, what did Jesus do, right? Look at what he did. Think about what he did. Where did his footprints go when he lived on earth? They went to baptism. They went to proclaiming the gospel. They went to resisting the devil in the wilderness. They went to following his father's will in every aspect of his life. They went to suffering. They went to dying. They went to rising. Sometimes when we struggle to think what would Jesus do in this circumstance? <laughs> One of the reasons why we struggle with that is Jesus wouldn't even be in the circumstance we're in, right? We're, we're 10 steps far beyond where Jesus ever would have walked. So we've got to retrace ourselves to get, to get back on the path of where Jesus would be walking. Most often, it's our disobedience that gets us into a mess and our foolishness that Jesus himself never had. But I think the question before us this morning is just very clearly, do you follow the Lamb? Charles Spurgeon said it this way, the blood-bespattered footprints of my master, I will follow them until they receive mine, never with equal strides, but still with gladsome footsteps I will follow in his tracks. I love how he says that, never with equal strides. It's like me walking with my children, right? They always say, Dad, you're walking too fast and I feel like I'm going at a snail's pace, but because my legs are so freakishly long, they look and they're like, hey, you gotta slow down. Sometimes I just say, I'm speeding up, and I'm pulling you up, and here we go. We gotta move on. That's exactly what it is, walking with Christ, right? Jesus, your legs are too long. I can't follow in your footsteps. Jesus takes much bigger steps than we do. But if he's given you his Holy Spirit, then you know you have someone residing in your soul that will catch you up. You have somebody who's going to help you. Is it your desire to follow the lamb this morning? Can I just plead with you? I don't know where you're at this morning. If you're following Jesus Christ, if you love the lamb, if you want to pursue him with every fiber of your being, amen and amen, and I want to pray that you would continue to do that. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ, you are not following him. You don't really care where his footprints lead. You want to follow your own steps. You want to be your own master. I just want to plead with you this morning. Lunch can wait. Don't leave until you know what it means to follow the lamb. Don't leave until you know what happens if you don't follow the lamb. You need to know the alternative. And by the way, John's going to tell us that in chapter 14. John's going to tell us what happens if you don't follow the lamb. And you can read ahead and you can see it is devastating. So please, bow the knee to Christ now. Follow him. True believers can stand the pain of denying yourself to take up your cross and to follow a master who loves you more than you could possibly imagine. You will not love someone you don't know. You won't follow someone you don't trust. And so this morning, if you don't know the goodness of Jesus, you don't know why we're singing songs about a crucified, bloodied Savior, can I just plead with you? Come talk to me afterwards. Come talk to Sergio after. Talk to somebody and say, I want to know. Don't leave until you know why Jesus is worthy of our every affection. Jonathan Edwards said in Resolution number 63, I want to be the best Christian I can be, and I want to be the best Christian in the world. Let's let CBC be that. Not in arrogance, but with godly ambition to say, God, use us. We will hate nothing but sin. We will love nothing but Christ. And let's go change the world. Amen? Father, thank you for your word that is so clear and so powerful and so appropriate in every setting. Father, give us courage to live on this hope this morning that though we are not the 144,000, we bear the same marks that they, they have. We are preserved by you. Your word tells us that you will preserve us and bring us safely home. You who began the good work in us will be faithful to complete it. We know that promise. And we know that we praise you for who you are and for what you've done. And we know that we are following you, our lamb. You speak and we hear your voice and we follow after you and we love you. And so we know that we get to be invited this morning by the 144,000 who are the first fruits of what is yet to come. We want to follow in their footsteps that haven't even happened yet. We want to follow you wherever you lead. So even as we sing, confirm these truths to our hearts such that we would say this morning, lead me, keep me from falling, carry me close to your heart. And I know without a shadow of a doubt, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life as I pursue the Lamb. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.